You're listening to The Ladies Room. I am Iris St. Moran. And I'm Jennifer Sanders. So by day, we're television news anchors at competing stations in New York. But in real life, we are the best of friends. Okay, so tell our listeners why we decided on The Ladies Room. You know, it's that place where you get yourself together, maybe fix your hair and makeup, tell a secret. Ladies know what I mean. Girl, you know I know what you mean. So you'll get to hear from some phenomenal ladies who are doing phenomenal things across the world. And our goal is to provide inspiration and information. We're on air in the ladies' room. All right, welcome back to the ladies' room. Today we have the Farah Jadrin in the ladies' room with us. Now, funny story about Farah, real quick, and you don't even know this. I'm I don't know. I've never told you this. So the first introduction I had to Farah, and it wasn't even a formal introduction, I went to the Ronald McDonald House, uh, what was it? It was a fashion show. It was several years ago. It was when Nico, your husband, yes. now husband, proposed to you. And so everyone was like, ooh, and I, it was like you were this celebrity couple. <laughs> and so I said, I have got to meet her. And then a few years later, we met, and now it we work together. It took us a few years later yeah, to officially meet. Oh, it did. Sad. It did. But we met, and now I understand why everyone loves you so much, Aww. just because you're committed to the community and just everything that you do. And Nico is so sweet, too. I've only I'm had a crying. few conversations with him, but, yeah, y'all are definitely kindred spirit so I can That's see that. That's the only reason why I went out with him in the first place is because I, I always had positive interaction with him and I thought this this could be okay. And that's the only reason I said yes. Otherwise, I was thinking, he's going to be this cool TV guy, and it's not going to go well. But we turned out to be huge dorks, and <laughs> he was a bigger dork than I was on the first date, so it all worked out. And you are a journalist. You have done magazine, television, newspaper. So we'll delve into all that. First, I want to kind of start at the very beginning. Did you always want to be in the world of news, in the world of journalism? What was your kind of ultimate goal for your life? I did. I mean, I was growing up in a Chicago suburb, so we grew up watching very specific reporters and anchors my whole life. I grew up watching WGN News, and for some people, they can get that on a cable channel, so you can enjoy WGN, love it. Um, WGN, um, ABC7 in Chicago, those were the channels we watched growing up. I would read the Sun-Times, the Daily Herald, the Chicago Tribune. I'd make up stories about, you know, what was going on in the house, you know, so I'd make my own little newspaper and walk around the house with it. I used to get uh, highlighters or the biggest marker I could, and that was my microphone, My older brother and sister did not think that was cute or loved it or anything, but my mother and father, mom and papa, they endured that. And my father worked nights and my mom worked during the day. So every time papa was getting ready for work, you know, he showers and then he's in the bathroom shaving, he's got his work clothes on. And I go in there and I'd have my highlighter and I'd ask him, Papa, what are you doing right now? And it's the same thing every day, but he would come up with new things to tell me that, you know, happened during the day or the night before at work. And as I got a little bit older, my mom got me an Echo phone. Brother and sister didn't like that. And then when I was a little bit older, maybe like fifth, fourth, fifth, sixth grade, I got one of those pianos. I'm not musical, but it had a microphone attached to it with great volume, and it had a little strap on it. So I would walk around with it, like slung across my chest, and I would play my own little news open. And then, then I had my microphone and would interview everybody about, you know, how their day was going. And again... A lot of people had to endure that for a few years, but it helped me 
you know, just kind of dabble in it and, you know, have fun with it as a child. And, and I would kind of mimic the anchors and the reporters I would see on TV. So I didn't go out and get a story, but I, you know, heard about a story on TV and then I would use it in the house and, you know, perfect it. But um, growing up, I just kind of knew that that's what I wanted to do. I also, for some reason, got it in my head that I should go to grad school for journalism. I just thought one day, yes, I have to do that after college. And I was thinking that before I even went to high school, and I still can't really explain to you how that got into my head, but I thought I'll do my undergraduate and then I'm gonna go to graduate school somewhere in um, the state of New York or um, Massachusetts or even somewhere close to home in, in the Chicago area. And I ended up going to Newhouse for that master's degree that I thought I needed. <laughs> did you study journalism undergrad? I did. I, I studied mass communications and focused on news editorial. And while you're there, they had you do a little bit of everything. So I was learning PR and advertising and even design, you know, things that I, I was thinking, when would I need these? And now it all makes sense. But that was at a, a small mass communication school at Colorado State University, Pueblo, which I transferred into um, for my final years of undergraduate. And while I was there, I just learned so much about everything. And for some reason, even though I knew I wanted to ultimately go into broadcast, I just really wanted to hone in on my written word. And when I was at Newhouse, I had you know professors like Bob Lloyd and Emily Davis who just really appreciated somebody coming in and saying, I want to make sure I'm working and brushing up on my written word and, and my skills. And they really helped me polish those and, and helped me become a confident writer, which I think still helps me today when I'm using my voice uh, as my primary medium. Yeah, definitely. And many people don't know that you actually went to school on a scholarship. A track and field scholarship. I did, yeah. So I, some people know that I run, but they may not have known me as the runner that I was when I was younger. And I know people say, how old are you? But anyways, we'll go back in time a little bit. But the, the way I got into running was I switched schools after third grade because my mom started teaching at another school and um, she was teaching Spanish classes and, and where your mom goes to just school to teach, it just makes sense for me to go to school too and, and go to school. And I switched schools and my sister said, you know, you're going to start somewhere new, you don't have any friends, why don't you join the cross country team? And, and by this point, I've only been a gymnast and a dancer and that's all I've known from the age of five. So now I'm, you know, nine and thinking, running, I have no idea what this is. So I go to the cross country practices and for the first week, you're just kind of running this loop around the lake in uh, Glen Ellen, Illinois, if anyone knows where that is. And um, the course that fifth graders run is a mile. So you just get ready to run a mile. So fast forward a couple weeks, we go to our first race, and I have no idea what I'm doing, and I keep asking all of the coaches, what do I do when the gun goes off? I'm like, just have fun. So I ask the next coach, what do I do? Just do your best. We'll, we'll wait for you at the finish line. Okay, I ask another coach, what do I do when the race starts? I mean, how do I race? And he's like, just do your best. We know you're going to have fun out there. And I'm so frustrated at this point because I'm like, what do I do when the gun goes off? And even Papa, he had no real uh, plan for me to, to say, do this and run this hard. And he just said, I'm so proud of you and I'll be waiting for you at the finish line. I'm like, oh, like, I'm just so disappointed in this. The gun goes off, there's like 80 girls in this race. And I'm just running, wanting to do okay, and I don't even know what that means. I get to the halfway mark, and this woman is counting off the place you are. And I was 20th, and I was like, wow, halfway through the race, and I'm beating like 60 girls. That's cool. So I thought, 
I'm just going to run as hard as I can for the rest of the race. It's a half mile. I can do it. So I ended up finishing ninth overall and the first on my team. And I had no idea that that was good or really what it was. And they gave you a little popsicle stick after they record your time. Mine had a nine on it because that's what I finished. My father wraps me in this big hug. It was like this great moment. He's like, oh my gosh, that was amazing to watch you just move up in the field. And my head coach was like, Farah, I had no idea you knew how to race. And I looked him dead straight in the eyes. I said, neither did I. <laughs> and I just loved that moment because it actually taught me to be fearless that day that, I mean, I didn't second guess myself and thought, I'm just going to run as hard as I can because you, you could lose your gas in a race and just, you know, you're on E now, sorry, you know, and, and I've had races like that where I went out too hard or started to kick too soon. But even though I had some races down the road as I got more competitive where I would kind of second guess myself, now I still look back to that race when I feel down about anything and I'm like, God, you didn't second guess yourself and you were nine years old and you had no idea what you were doing. You know, so that was that was something I still carry with me today. And and through high school, I stayed very competitive. I started to be recruited by several Division One schools. And my senior year in high school, I finished second in cross country overall for the state of Illinois, which Illinois is a huge running state, as is New York and Colorado and California. Those are running states. So that was a great finish for me in cross country. I finished all state in the mile. Uh, my senior year also qualified for the two mile. Didn't have the best race I wanted there. And then I ended up uh, choosing the University of Nebraska as the school I would go to. I got recruited by other schools like KU, Ohio State, um, Georgia. And I ended up going to Nebraska on a full ride, and I was very grateful for that. Um, but unfortunately, while I was there, something was going on, and I just started to deteriorate. And I know I've kind of mentioned this to you, Jen, where... You know, you, you kind of listen to the people around you. Doctors, they're great doctors at Division One colleges. We know that. And, you know, they're doing tests, trying to figure out why I'm so fatigued, why I was sick all the time. And we couldn't figure it out. And at one point, we realized I probably had somewhat of a hernia in my lower abdomen. And if anyone's ever had a hernia, d depending on the severity of it, you can work through it even as an athlete and decide to get it fixed at some point. So I just kept getting slower, couldn't reach my times, didn't know what happened, and I just figured I peaked. And enough people told me, you probably peaked, Farah, that I just figured, okay, I did. My running career, competitively at least, is over. And it wasn't until almost two years later that I left Nebraska that I was going to get this hernia fixed because it was causing me a lot of pain, and I was still feeling really fatigued and sick and just had all these issues but never really chalked them up to being related. And during the surgery, they realized it wasn't a hernia at all, but I had a tumor. And after a biopsy, the doctors tell me it was mesothelioma cancer, which is very rare for someone my age at that time, or even women, and it's still fairly rare. And uh, it explained a lot of the things that were happening to me for, for those several years. And it took me a long time to recover from that, not just treatment, but just the surgery altogether to get back into running. So that was a really tough time because when I started to run again, I kind of had to start all over again. And I feel like I'm starting all over again this year too because I've had some setbacks. So when you're starting all over again, but you used to be able to run five-minute flat miles and be winning 5Ks in Chicago and setting records and having a college scholarship, you know, going back to square one was really hard. But then I started to set new goals to run marathons and to run faster for 26.2 miles. Not five-minute miles, but I've run a low eight-minute mile pace for one of my best marathons. And to me, that was like a big win for me to come back from. But it, it was very emotional for me to go to a race after so long and know that I wasn't going to be in first and that I didn't have a chance at it and that 
you're not going to run those times. So I know that everyone has different goals, but when you're at that level and you got to bring yourself back down, but then work up again, it was tough, but I'm, I'm really glad that I'm reworking that again. And when you got that cancer diagnosis, take me back to that moment. Um, you know, we all know people that have been affected by cancer. And when you're told those words, I mean, it's just like, you don't even know what's next and how you're going to make it sometimes. I was blown away because, first of all, I've never heard of that cancer before. But second of all, I was there for a hernia surgery, you know, and the doctor telling me in post-op, uh, waiting as long as he could, he wanted to tell me as soon as he could because the surgery ended up being longer for that reason. He's trying to explain to me that it was a tumor, and I'm, I'm thinking, what, what is he talking about? I said, are you sure you're talking to the right person? And it was my surgeon. I just was so confused by the whole thing. So it really was a scary moment. I mean, I was 21 years old and had never heard of this cancer before. I thought I was just going to have a simple like hour and a half, two hour procedure. And it wasn't that at all. So, you know, he said, let's come back in a, a few days and, and talk. So, you know, they told me it was a tumor and then we had to wait for the biopsy. Um, so when I came back, you know, they're talking about treatment and, you know, taking it easy and, and, these are uh, things we need to look at in uh, blood levels. And I just, you know, I still look back to the time of how foggy I felt for weeks, just thinking, I can't believe I just took a huge left turn in my health. You know, I always thought that my health was measured by my fitness in terms of my speed and uh, my mile time, my 5K time, and, you know, how many push-ups, sit-ups I could do or how fast I could run a 1,000 meters over and over again. And I'm thinking, no, that's not my health at all. My health is my overall well-being. And if I have something inside of me that I had no idea about, I need to take care of it and I need to be a better health advocate. And, and I think that's why I do a lot of the things I do today is making sure that women are very self-aware of their bodies altogether, you know, and, and every now and then we still slip. You know, I know all of us in this room do a lot of work with local charities, especially women's health, you know, heart health and ovarian cancer health, breast cancer, cancer health. But we still sometimes are like, oh, you know, I'll go in a couple weeks or if this is still bad in a week and I catch myself after a few days of thinking, oh, something's fine. I'm like, no, we can't do that again because I went years and that thing that I thought was nothing was growing into something worse. And I'm, I'm lucky that it was caught at that time and, and not, you know, far off that, that it couldn't be fixed at that time. We're lucky too. Oh, thanks. <laughs> so any family history or was it just like out of the blue? Or? Really out of the blue. We didn't really have any cancer history in our family, um, especially mesothelioma. Um, my father um, was later diagnosed with thyroid cancer, but no real tie um, between the two. Um, so, yeah, I mean, when I told my mom that this is, you know, what we're dealing with, she was just as surprised and confused, but... Um, it kind of taught us that self-awareness because something like mesothelioma can be something that you can develop by being exposed to certain things, you know, whether it's a chemical or asbestos or, um, you know, something that was in a, a building that you were in regularly. It doesn't mean that everyone was going to get it. It just depends on if something inside of you was susceptible to it. So it really just was a good reminder of be self-aware. 
even if you know there's a, a certain type of cancer or illness in your family that you may never get you just have to be aware of how the cogs and the wheels are moving inside because if you ignore sometimes the smallest thing or what you know for us women is usually a, a silent symptom or something we think oh it's it's because I'm a woman we really can't do that because it, it could be something more. So you survived and I you're did. thriving. I'm thriving. Thriving, thriving every single day. So now fast forward to the time that you decided to move to Syracuse, New York. You said you came here to go to Newhouse. Mm-hmm. And really you have made this a community of your own. You have made this your home. So your transition from Illinois to Syracuse and how you got here and, and why you've stayed for so long. Yeah, I mean, when I got here, I felt pretty welcomed right away and um, for some people who are are thinking you know you were in a Chicago suburb or in Chicago a lot like I spent a lot of weekends in Chicago in terms of races or um, going there for different uh, classes and things like that but Syracuse is a great community and um, going to school and getting a job at a local newspaper at the same time with Eagle Newspapers was a huge learning experience. And I considered myself grateful to have a job in journalism in the years of 2008-2009 when that was listed as one of the worst jobs to have um, because of the recession and just how the market was going. And it's still a tough job to have today and and think, you know, how much money are you going to make? And uh, are there jobs available? And do you have the skills? But being at Newhouse, having the support from professors, and just the encouragement. I had such down-to-earth, open-book professors that, you know, I'm going to my internship and I have questions or, you know, I'm working on a story. You can They'll make time for you to come in and, and chat with them or get on the phone with them and say, you know, I'm really trying to get this piece to work like this. You know, what can I do? And they really just helped me grow and explore a bit more. So that was a, a huge help that I, I, don't, I think I'm going to be indebted forever from uh, specific professors. Um, but then getting that start in community newspaper journalism was incredible. There's people that I was working with and also interviewing or had as sources back in 2009, which nine years later, I still call on sometimes to be, you know, a source for something or connect me with somebody. And you both know, once you meet somebody and you generate a relationship, you just keep building on it. And and good reporters, we don't burn bridges. You know, we, we are objective, fair, and balanced to all of our sources. And then you just grow with them, you know, and then they get to know you, they trust you so that I'm not even calling on them sometimes, but they call back on me. So, you know, I went from community journalism with the newspaper and then that same newspaper group launched a women's magazine here and because when I was at Newhouse I was an MNO a magazine newspaper online journalism with an M emphasis so magazine was my my passion my focus I thought if I ever ever am going to be in print journalism forever I would want it to be magazine journalism and I would always tell my classmates my dream was to be the editor of a women's magazine and you know like oh you know it would take forever to to become the editor of Glamour or Vanity Fair and and that wasn't even necessarily the magazines I had in mind I really wanted to be a part of a women's magazine that was about real women that we know that you could run into that you can identify with and it was a dream. Never did I think it would happen in Syracuse, and never did I think I would have it would happen. You know, less than less than a year, really, from graduating from grad school, because it was fall 2010, even earlier, that we were starting to piece it together, and it launched in January of 2011. 
I didn't ever think that that was really going to happen so soon and that I was going to be the editor, you know, so that was a dream come true. And, and luckily the publisher at Eagle Newspapers remembered, hey, she had a magazine background. Maybe she should be the one to head this project. And, and I did. And I, I stayed with Syracuse Woman Magazine for more than four years. It was really tough to leave, um, but it just... It was time for me to grow a bit more, and I transitioned into social media and digital journalism by moving to what was then Time Warner Cable News and Time Warner Cable Sports Channel, now Spectrum News, and got to work with Iris, which was awesome. (laughs) And um, it was just kind of honing in on more skills that I picked up. You know, I, I really wasn't even huge into social media when um, I started with the magazine. I just knew we got to get the magazine out there. I want it out there for people. I started the Twitter and the Facebook, and then so many people were like, Farah, you're not on social media? I just had the magazine out there. They're like, you're kind of the face of the magazine. We need to hear from you and learn about you. And I'm like, you read about me or whatever I'm doing on that editor's page once a month. And I I honestly sometimes wanted to get rid of that page and put an extra story in there. (laughs) Like anytime people are like, oh, I can't wait to see what you write write about. And I thought... No, I want to put another story in there. And sometimes I would put like a mini story in there like, oh, I ran into so-and-so and they're amazing. And this is why you should, you know, find out more about them. But um, yeah, I just started to realize the power of social media to put all of those women's stories out there, their passions, um, their triumphs, their trials, and just information I knew would be good for women and women in this community. And and, you know, that following for Syracuse Woman Magazine continues to grow. It, it keeps thriving on the magazine stands. I love when I see it out. It It's always bittersweet because I'm like, oh, I used to edit that magazine, but I'm going to pick it up and I'm the reader. So I love that. And, and I love um, the women that keep writing in it, editing it, and um, work behind the scenes as the, the sales executives. But I went to Time Warner Cable News and Sports Channel when all over the country, traveling to the different newsrooms, to the different sports channels. Got to cover Fashion Week for New York One, behind the scenes, doing social media. That was a lot of fun. Um, You know, did stuff with Sports Channel that I never thought I would have had the opportunity to do before, and I'm a huge sports fan, so that was a lot of fun to do and explore. But while I was doing it, I was realizing I was missing being a journalist, missing being the storyteller, and missing the chance to possibly do broadcast, which I did a little bit of along the way while doing the magazine. I was a part of a public affairs show at WCNY for about a year, and I hosted that, did um, interviews and packages for a half-hour show every week, and just those worlds, I felt like were colliding in my heart, like, you know, you want to put those together, but you know, it just, it wasn't the right time. So I continued on doing what I was doing and I loved everyone I was working with, you know, in Syracuse and all, all of the stations. And then an opening came up at News Channel 9 and part of me was thinking, you know, I don't, have I been away from broadcast too long? Cause I, I wasn't doing that public affairs show for about two years at that point. I was like, but I, you know, I still had my writing skills. I had my storytelling skills. I had my connections and I remembered nine-year-old Farah. I was like, she wouldn't second-guess that. She would just go for it, apply. What does that hurt? Just go for it. And I ended up getting the job. And while it was bittersweet to leave Iris, <laughs> I joined Jennifer. And I've been there about three years now and um, have done you know various things there from being general assignment 
during the week and, and being the, the weekend reporter, which we know puts a lot of uh, grit under your fingernails and teaches you to be independent and, and do a lot of things and have your know-how. So that, that was a great learning experience. And at one point I was producing and anchoring the weekend morning news, which was, again, more growing because you're there all alone and you have to make certain decisions and it's you all night and it's up to you to put that show on in the morning and having live guests, that was a lot of fun. And since last fall, I officially am with Jen every morning uh, as the morning news reporter, which I love. I get up at 2.30 in the morning. Jen loves that too. Um, but I think it's we a have struggle. a struggle. You know, struggle's <laughs> real. But we have a lot of fun. You know, some mornings we have very serious stories and, and sometimes tragic, sad news. But, you know, I think we all kind of lean on each other, especially on those days. You know, if I'm out in the field, I know you guys feel for me when you're back in the studio. And I know that when I come back, I have Dan Cummings and, and Jennifer Sanders and I have Kate Thornton to kind of just bring me back down to earth and, you know, kind of talk through whatever it was, you know, Tom, our photographer, and I were, were going through. And we just move on and you keep going, you know. So I have I really consider myself grateful for everything Syracuse has given me. And I don't want to cry, but when I moved here, you know, I just thought I'm going to grad school, we'll see what happens. And the pieces to the puzzle just really came together and I never thought I would meet the love of my life here and have such wonderful friends and you know have three great dogs two of them yes two of them adopted from Helping Hounds shout out to them Iris Nose and uh, just countless blessings cannot say that enough about Syracuse you're talking about you Syracuse giving a lot to you but you give so Mm -hmm. much back you know, we've had this conversation. Just talk a little bit about just the community service aspect. The list is long. <laughs> you know, and I appreciate when you or anyone says that to me, you know, thank you for the things that you do. But really, when I talk about how much Syracuse has done for me, that's why I feel compelled to dig the roots in, immerse myself, and give of my time. Um, there's just so many people, places, and organizations that deserve that. You know, and I think anytime someone maybe thinks a little bit down on the place they grew up or uh, a place they moved to, um, you gotta really just look around. You know, so many times I've had people tell me, oh, there's nothing to do in Syracuse. And we all know in this room, our schedule's packed. And it's not because we're journalists or in TV. That has nothing to do with it. I have tons of friends who don't have these jobs. And their schedule's just as packed. You have to get connected, and it's very simple. You can do it very easily. But, I mean, some of the organizations that have just become a part of my heart, Helping Hounds, I love doing anything I can for them. So does Nico. They gave us two of our babies, Bear and Bogey. And, uh, you know, what can you say? You know, animals are, you know, selfless, and they just, mm-hmm. they need you. You know, so it's, it's a population that... Um, really needs help and and care so anything we can do for them uh, we we try to do Um, hope for heather ovarian cancer awareness is probably one of the the organizations i've just grown to be a part of and love so much frida weeks founder and executive director along with her husband gary weeks they started that organization in memory of heather weeks who is around my age and um, she died of a very aggressive colon cancer and a lot of people may always confuse if 
um, she had ovarian cancer, colon cancer, but the reason why it's an ovarian cancer awareness organization is because she was dancing her heart out at Juilliard and started to work with OCRF in um, New York City, the Ovarian Cancer Research Fund at the time, the name's a little different now, but um, she became passionate about Tell a Woman, and Tell a Woman is all about the silent symptoms, and they are symptoms that any of us could have at any time. And it doesn't mean you have ovarian cancer, but it means you need to be cognizant when those things aren't going away. If you have an urgency to urinate, bloating, severe abdominal pain, um, feeling like you're full right away. And those are things that I'm sure happen to all three of us at some point. Again, doesn't mean that you have it, but it means when things are lingering and there may be some other issues as well, it's when you need to tell your doctor, I need to look into this. What can I do? Um, so working with Gary and Frida over the years to carry on Heather's legacy has been an honor and a privilege. We have so many women in our lives that we have lost to ovarian cancer and, and some to breast and ovarian cancer. And while we want them to all be survivors and warriors, we know we have some angels. We have lost some just incredible women. And that's really hard. That makes what we do even harder when we're trying to educate and raise awareness and raise funds for research. But we know that every woman that we hand a symptom card to and a teal ribbon to, it could save one more person's life. And we've started Men of Teal over the past few years to get men to have those uncomfortable conversations, which actually takes women by surprise and actually gets them to start talking. And we've had Men of Teal who have put those ribbons and cards out into the community, including Gary Weeks, who will go to a crunch game and give thousands of people ribbons and cards, and we know that they're getting the message out, so that's huge. Um, currently, I'm the board president for Vera House. Jen serves on the board as well, and especially in the climate we're in today of the Me Too movement and at Vera House, the I Will movement that we have started um, as kind of a response to Me Too. It's time to hear the truth and, and listen. You know, I think for so long, it could be very easy for people to look the other way because maybe not as many people were coming forward or, or kept it buried inside of them for, you know, some people decades, which isn't okay. You can't bury pain like that, bury a truth like that. It needs to come out. So at Vera House, you know, we are doing um, awareness and education and advocacy all the time. But now more than ever, it's really about hearing the voices and helping anybody that needs to be heard to be heard and to get them the services and the help that they need. And we've had so many incredible survivors share their stories and then turn around and inspire others to come forward. And that's huge. Um, I know a lot of times we share in the board meetings and um, I'll share it with everyone who will listen to this is that, you know, we've had a lot of stories in the Syracuse community about domestic violence and sexual assault and rape, and there have been some that turned deadly. And we don't like re reporting those stories, but they're the truth, and they're the facts, and they're investigations, and they're out there. In maybe the mainstream national media, we have celebrities coming forward, or maybe people who weren't the celebrities but were working for some of the big names coming forward um, with their allegations and their accusations, speaking their truths. And for some people, it may be harder to accept that someone they idolized could be accused of something so horrible. All that said, 
I think it was middle of last fall, somebody said to me, when, when is it going to be enough? When are we going to stop hearing all of these stories that, oh, I was sexually harassed or I was sexually assaulted. When are we going to stop hearing this and, and having to report all of these things? And, and I, I said, we'll stop hearing about it and having to report it when it stops happening. Mm -hmm. To me, that's a no-brainer. And I think for a lot of the things that we get involved with or that we raise money for, we're, we're trying to find cures for cancer. That's how you cure cancer. The way you cure domestic violence, sexual assault, sexual abuse, is by not doing it at all. The prevention, it shouldn't even start. We, we shouldn't have to have a Vera house, and we say that all the time in the work that we do. The day that we don't need a Vera house is the day that we know we did it. We cross the finish line. We live in a world free of domestic violence and sexual assault, but it, it, this is one of the easiest things to make change of in our society. It wouldn't happen if people weren't doing it. Cancer happens because we're still figuring that out. We have some answers to what causes certain cancers. We don't have the answers for cures. We're constantly fundraising and, and finding certain things that help people ailing from certain cancers, but domestic violence, sexual assault is something that we can solve now. We have the answers. We just need everybody to say, yes, we'll do this and we'll move forward together. The question that we asked, you want to ask ours? Because <laughs> yeah. it kind of fits in with the conversation that we were having earlier. Nine-year-old Farah, I think she and I would be great friends uh, with the microphone. <laughs> I miss her. Yeah. Yeah, with the microphone <laughs> yeah. and everything. I think we all would have been yeah. like, great friends growing yes. up. Um, I admire her, her courage. But what advice would you give your younger self? It doesn't have to be little nine-year-old Farah. Yeah. It could be 16-year-old, but... You know, well, it's funny you say 16 because I think I mentioned, you know, I was fearless at nine, but then, you know, the competition starts growing and now you have all these extra influences on you and you're thinking, maybe I'm not good enough and what about this? I, I'd love to tell teenage Farah or even Farah when she was nine is that I'm glad you're fearless, but don't ever forget it. Keep being fearless because there were a lot of times where I, I'll, I'll think back to these, and this is where you know I'm a true distance runner, a true, true racer from back then, is I'll, I'll just start bugging Nico with some old race story. You know, people have their old, you know, I played this football game in, you know, 87. Well, I'll go back to a specific race, and I know exactly where it was, whether it was track or cross country, and which other high school or parochial school it was. And I'm just like, if I just made my move there, I would have been first and not third, or I just... And it's so hard because I know there were, and there's races I deserve to lose, but there are a nice handful of titles I let slip away because I second-guessed myself and I was too afraid to break away from the pack. So I would say to younger Farah, break away from the pack. Be you, be strong, be fast, be fearless. And fast doesn't have to mean mean I'm going to get my PR again, which if I, if I one, day, one day do, praise Jesus, that would be amazing. <laughs> uh, but, you know, be fast because fast means acting in the moment. It doesn't mean rush things, but it means take that moment to just break away, you know? And, and if that fast moment means, you know, like I went for a run yesterday that I just sprinted for a few blocks and felt free and felt the wind on me, 
then that's what I'm going to do. And if it means, you know, when I'm writing a story, being fast, meaning I'm just going to try this and, and see how it sounds. And if I go back and I change it, fine, but break free and just do it. You know, I feel like a lot of times we'll hold ourselves back because maybe we're a little scared of how it might turn out or what somebody might think, you know. So, yeah, I got to tell young Farah to just break away, be you, be fast, be fearless. I love it. I love it. All right. So where can people find you on social media? I'm just at Farah Jadrin. Um, on, spell it for um, us. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> so we you were spell your first and last name. This morning at the story I was at this morning, someone said, well, how do you spell your name? I just spell it for a judge uh, because they were approving all the media that was in there for a court case. So he said, could you spell that? And I said, of course. Um, it's Farah, so F, and I always do this, F as in Frank, A-R-A-H-J-A-D as in David, not to my brother, R-A-N like Nancy, Farah Jadrin. And you can find me on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram under that. And if you... Go to any of those pages, even though they are my professional pages. There will be pictures of dogs. Yeah. Dogs and dogs, Jack, Bear, and Bogey. Couldn't live without them. And a lot of times, you know, posts about food, donuts. <laughs> Jennifer knows. if Farah loves food, y'all. If oh somebody says that lunch is going to be somewhere or there's going to be food at a meeting and there isn't, my face gets very sad. It does. I had to give her a hug one time and comfort her. Well, remember the she... time my lunch got thrown out? I, oh, I cried a little bit. Yeah. But yeah, no, nobody may time. understand that wasn't there at that moment. But like I, I had just gone shopping the day before and I had, or actually it was that morning because Wegmans was open 24 hours. I brought a few lunches and I thought, oh, you know, I'm at work. I'll put them in the fridge. And I'm so excited. It's lunchtime, which is like 7 a.m. for us. I go and I get my lunch, and it's gone because the fridge does need to be cleared out. And I thought, I thought this wasn't happening till later. But we come in at, you know, 3.15 in the morning, and my lunch was gone at 7. I'm going to get emotional about it. But, yeah, my lunch (laughs) was gone. I was like, someone threw it away. It was a terrible morning. I know. But I think yeah. It was was a terrible morning. Yeah. Okay. But, yes. Food, dogs, and, you know, news stories and wonderful people that I love in my life, like Jen and Iris. Um, You'll see them on my social media, too. Definitely. Well, thank you so much for joining us in the ladies' room. I love it in the ladies' room. The Farah Jadron. Check her out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Thanks again for being with us. Thank you for having me. Doggy play date soon. (laughs) Let's keep the conversation going. Connect with us on social media using the handle onairTLR. And, of course, if there's a lady you want us to interview, just let us know. We'll chat again soon in the The ladies' ladies' room.